Ski, Shoot, Repeat, a biathlon podcast, hosted by Lizzie Boyle. Episode 12. Welcome to Boberhof. The biathlon circus came to Oberhof and put on a great show. I confess that I was on vacation for much of the recent World Championships, so I only saw a few of the races live. But even knowing some of the results, there was still drama and excitement in watching the replays. Whilst I was away, I was able to keep an eye on things through social media, the IBU app, and if I had wanted to, through broadcast TV or streaming. This got me to thinking about the history of sports broadcasting, so that'll be my deep dive this week. But we'll get to that. Given the excitement of the World Championships, it's only fair to start this week's episode with biathlon. The main thing to say about Oberhof is that it had all of the weather. We saw blue skies and sunshine, heavy rain, mists that made the targets almost invisible, at least to the TV cameras, strong gusting winds that almost put pay to the relays, and temperatures up above 10 degrees C, or well into the 50s in Fahrenheit. This meant that each day was a bit of a lottery. You didn't know what conditions you would get, and that the ski and wax technicians had to work harder than ever. Sometimes it was icy underfoot, sometimes slushy. You could see different biathletes looking nervous on their skis from time to time, and there were several falls during the course of the racing. The most controversial weather day was probably the relay day. The winds were so strong in the men's relay that there was concern that the race should be postponed. That said, it was the same for everyone, and there were people who were able to shoot through the conditions, as well as those who weren't. So what happened? Well, last time round, I made some predictions, so I figured I should reflect back on those as a way to summarise the events of the past couple of weeks. Firstly, I said that the French women would have a great time. Specifically, I said we should expect to see Julia Simon on the podium at least twice, Lou Jeanne Monod in the top 10 more than once, and one of the Chevaliers in the top 10, as well as a medal in the women's relay. It was a lot to ask, and they did pretty well. Julia bounced back from 10th place in the sprint to take a great gold in the pursuit. She also took bronze in the mass start. Anais Chevalier-Boucher came 4th in the mass start, getting the top 10 I predicted. Lou Jeanne Monod was 6th in the pursuit and 7th in the individual. Sadly and surprisingly, the team missed out on a medal in the women's relay, a race I'll come back to later. It's weird, reading this back it sounds like the team had a great week, and yet there were some hints of disappointment. I think Julia Simon felt she could achieve more, even though she got a first, a third, a fifth and a tenth in the solo races, which is a phenomenal level of consistency. You could sense that the team were frustrated by the relay, given how strong they had been all year. But on reflection, a great championships for Julia, and for Lou Jean Monod. Two top tens in her first season at this level is incredible. My next prediction was that someone called Oberg would win. Initially I thought this would be Elvira, but she struggled with health issues through the competitions and missed a couple of races. She'll have been disappointed with ninth in the sprint, but was rewarded by a bronze in the women's relay. The revelation was Hannah Erberg. She first came to real global attention a few years back at the 2019 World Championships in Ostersund, taking an unexpected gold medal in the individual. Since then, she's proven herself to be one for the biggest stages, frequently winning Olympic and world medals. She was absolutely ready for this championships and took gold in the individual, as I predicted, and in the mass start, as well as silver in the sprint. Just wow. 
Her race in the mass start was a demonstration of patience. After two early misses, she hung in there, competing for bronze, until two perfect shoots to end the race, alongside mistakes by others. She came out of the final shoot a few seconds ahead and had the physical and mental strength to push all the way to the line in an incredible race. And on a great day for Sweden. More on this later. Two out of two so far, but my third prediction was a bit more mixed. I said there would be a German resurgence. The bit that I got right was that Denise Hermann Wick would get at least one medal, possibly two. She actually achieved that in the first few days, with gold in the sprint and silver in the pursuit. Her sprint gold was fantastic, not least because it got the German crowd fully invested. She also picked up a silver medal as part of the German women's relay team. And in fact, the women had a reasonable, if patchy, championships. They were able to get some good results, but not have consistency through the meet. For the men, it was more frustrating. I thought that Roman Rees would do something, but he seemed to struggle for speed. His shooting was around 80%, but he only cracked the top 10 once in the pursuit. It was the veteran Benedict Doll who had the best result for the German men, fifth in the individual, shooting 19 out of 20. Philip Naurath had an unexpected top 10 result in that race too, starting at number 78, showing he was one of the less favoured athletes. Johannes Kuhn managed a top 10 in the sprint. Looking back on it, it feels like a German man would consistently get into the top 10, but you couldn't predict who it would be, and the medals didn't follow. Next prediction was another mixed one. I said that Norway's men would boss the relay and the pursuit. Well, they definitely bossed the pursuit, with five of the top six places. But the relay got away from them. There was a lot of discussion about the wind deciding the race, but it was more like Vettel Christiansen's mistakes on the range on the first leg. They set Norway back by about 45 seconds. The wind then played a part in making it almost impossible to come back. I say almost impossible, they still got silver, and Johannes Bowe's final standing shoot was one for the highlight reel. Five out of five in less than 16 seconds, of which about seven were spent getting into position. Honestly, search on YouTube for Johannes Bowe standing shoot and watch the first video that comes up. It mentions 15.8 seconds in the title of the video, and honestly, it's insane. Speaking of Johannes, I was a bit mixed on my feelings about him this championship. I thought he would destroy the field in the sprint, which he did. But then I figured he'd get nervous in subsequent races, which he didn't. He held on for the pursuit gold, dominated the individual, and picked up gold medals in the mixed relay and single mixed relay. There was honestly a moment when we thought he would win gold in every race. The first crack came in that relay, and to be honest, it wasn't his fault. He could only work with what he had, shot beautifully, skied fast, but had to settle for silver. And on the final day, in the mass start, he had to settle for bronze. More on this race later. So I suggested that Johannes might have a disappointing tournament and only get four or five medals. In fact, he medalled in every single race he competed in, taking five golds, a silver and a bronze, and being presented at his closing press conference with a mock-up railway station sign for Boberhof. It was incredible. In my next prediction, I went for it on two of the French male biathletes, Emilien Jacquelin and Quentin Fillon-Maillet. Sadly, it wasn't to be for either of them in the solo races, though both picked up bronze in the mixed relay at the start of the championships. The highlight for them, alongside Fabien Claude and Antonin Guigonat, was a gold in the men's relay. 
They were solid all day in that race, highly motivated and racing for each other in those horrible weather conditions. There was a real joy and even relief for them at the end of the race, a renewed belief that they deserved to be world champions once again. My next prediction made me happy. I suggested a Swedish surprise from the men, with Martin Ponsuloma and Seb Samuelsson contending for medals. I'll take the win for this one. Seb Samuelsson had the worst possible start, with a mechanical mistake in the opening relay race, but bounced back to pick up bronze medals in the pursuit and the individual, and gold in the mass start. Martin Ponsuloma did his bit too, with silver in that same mass start. That mass start race, wow. Samuelsson was literally perfect, 20 out of 20 and super fast. I mentioned last week that it felt like some races would target specific races, and this was definitely one that the Swedes wanted. It also happened earlier in the same day as Hannah Erberg's mass start win, so, despite Norwegian dominance, it was the Swedish team who finished on a high. I also said, and I quote, watch out for the Italian women. This is possibly my favourite one, gold in the women's relay. It followed on from third and fourth in the women's individual, and a silver in the mixed relay. In the women's relay, the team hit 38 out of 40 shots, the biggest event of the year. Relative newcomers Samuela Camola and Hannah Ochtenthaler showed that they belong on this stage, whilst Dorothy Vera and Lisa de Vitozzi did what they do. Coming into the last shoot, Vitozzi was racing alongside Denise Herman Vick, the home favourite. Vitozzi showed some real tactical nous. She held back on her skis on the preceding lap, letting Herman Vick do all the work. Lisa then let rip in the shoot, hitting her first three shots in the time it took Denise to hit one. It was relentless, fast, accurate, and enough to make Denise miss two. Lisa then blasted the final lap for a well-deserved gold. That was my first set of predictions. I reckon I'm doing okay so far. I then made some slightly bolder predictions. I suggested that the Norwegian women would have a tough time and they would get the odd podium but not win a solo race. That came true. Marta olsby roisland looked good taking bronze in the pursuit and there was an amazing and unexpected silver for Ingrid Tandrevold in the mass start. She bounced back after an awful time on the range in the relay the day before. But no solo golds for the women. I also suggested that Anna-Maria Lampic of Slovenia could reach the podium in the women's sprint. This was a hard no. She was in contention early on, with 5 out of 5 in the prone, which she seems to have mastered, and her usual speed. But she only hit 1 out of 5 in the stand, and there's no way to ski yourself out of that. Another year of learning the standing shoot, and she's going to be a real challenger, at least in the sprints next year. I really hoped for medals, or maybe top fives, for the Czech Republic and Switzerland. I picked out Marketa Davidova and Michael Kritschmar for the Czech Republic. Marketa kindly obliged with a fifth in the mass start and a sixth in the sprint. Kritschmar took eighth in the men's pursuit. A shout out also to Teresa Vonkova, who came seventh in the women's pursuit, and to the men's relay team, who came so close to meddling but finished a valiant fourth. This is such a great squad with real team spirit. Jakob Strecki, a personal favourite, had the race of his life in the relay, and again this could be a platform for more confidence in the standing shoot, his one weaker area. Unfortunately, it didn't work out for the Swiss. They'd been performing so well earlier in the year, but I wonder if fatigue or illness were a factor. That said, Nicholas Hartweg and Sebastian Stalder continued their brilliant shooting, 
with Hartweg taking 6th in the individual and Stalder shooting 20 out of 20 to take 7th in the mass start. I think they'd have been happy with that at the start of the season. Lastly, I suggested some nice outsiders. A top 5 for Moldova, a top 5 for Finland or a top 10 for Canada. No luck for Moldova. The shooting form seems to have deserted them, possibly thanks to the conditions. Suvi Minkinen of Finland took 8th in the individual women's race, close to my top 5 prediction, and Tero Seppala came 10th in the men's mass start. Emma Lunder of Canada was brilliant, coming 7th in the mass start and 11th in the sprint, a great championships. Other shout-outs for smaller nations, Tuli Tomingas of Estonia getting 6th in the women's individual, Polona Kolemencic getting 8th in the women's sprint for Slovenia, Dmitro Pridruchny of Ukraine and Andres Rastoguyevs of Latvia getting top 10s in the sprint and the pursuit, showing that focusing on the big championships is a good way to thrive as an older athlete from a smaller nation. Our favourite Campbell Wright from New Zealand finishing 20th in the men's individual. And also a note about two of the bigger names who performed above expectations. Taye Bo's silver medals in the men's sprint and relay, top 10 performances throughout, He's 34 now and should be slowing down, but he has the big tournament experience to keep a cool head and shot brilliantly for much of the week. And Lynn Person had one of the most consistent world championships we've ever seen, never outside the top 10, and picking up medals in the sprint, the individual, and the women's relay. As I mentioned at the start, all of the above were available and still are through a huge range of broadcast technologies. This got me to thinking about how sports broadcasting has evolved and it felt like a nice topic to explore a little further. So, shall we begin? At first, sport was a live experience. You were there or you weren't. If you missed an event, you had to rely on others to tell you about it. Originally, this would have been word of mouth, but even in early human societies, there was communication about sport. There are cave paintings in Lasso showing sprinting and wrestling dating back around 15,000 years. In Mongolia, there are cave paintings from about 9,000 years ago, showing wrestling matches taking place in front of a crowd of spectators. Art and sculpture were used to demonstrate sporting prowess in classical times, often in celebration of athleticism rather than to depict specific events. Poetry was also a vehicle for sports journalism. The Iliad includes descriptions of sporting games held as part of funeral celebrations for important warriors. That link between sport and war is long-lasting. I mentioned very early in this series about how biathlon's origins came from the training of military patrols along contested borders. A lot of training was related to the requirements of the military. Equestrian skills, fencing and sword fighting, boxing and wrestling. The British monarchy would occasionally fret about revolution and ban sports that were played by the peasant or working classes. So the sports that started to gain public media attention were often those that were favoured by the elites. It was also the elites who were literate and who could afford newspapers as they started to emerge. In the early 1800s, newspapers began to publish sports information. Often this was focused on the social occasions. Things like horse racing, for example, where the elite of society came together, or boxing matches. At this time, many of the sports that we take for granted today had not yet been formally codified. They didn't have federations or associations. They didn't necessarily have formal teams. The history of sports broadcasting is another lens on the history of media technologies. 
And it's interesting to think about how sports have evolved to suit media and how different media have affected the sports that they are seemingly neutrally portraying. During the 19th century, more sports became codified and started to become more formally organised. Things like rugby, cricket, football, baseball. We saw the start of the modern Olympic movement too. Newspapers became available to more and more people, cheaper news for a more literate population. And factory owners and bosses realised that a healthy workforce was a productive one, so they encouraged greater participation in sports and exercise among their workers. Suddenly there was a surge of both participation and interest in sports, and a media keen to capitalise on their popularity. The 1880s saw the emergence of the first full-time sports journalist in the USA, and sports coverage began to take up more and more space in the newspapers. I was all set to leap forward to the age of radio, but there's a fun intermission here in the age of the telegraph. Telegraphs enabled much quicker point-to-point -point transmission of information, and this was used at some for some early efforts at live sportscasting. In 1896, the Stanley Cup ice hockey finals took place between Montreal and Winnipeg. Telegraph updates were sent from the arena in Montreal to the away team's fan base in Winnipeg. There's also a great story from Kansas in the US. In 1911, a thousand fans gathered to watch the recreation of a live football match. Each play was transmitted by telegraph, then recreated on a mechanical board. Think maybe of those people moving pieces around on wall-sized chessboards. The crowd got into it with chants and songs to even though the match was happening hundreds of miles away. As radio emerged, it started to show its suitability for broadcasting live events, whether it was news events, public ceremonies or sports. The 1920s are described as the golden age of American sports, but are perhaps seen this way because they were the golden age of radio, a medium which quickly and affordably became available to millions of households and which combined live commentary with the atmospheric sound of sports bats hitting balls, crowds cheering and so forth. Baseball and boxing were incredibly popular radio events in the US. Boxing, rugby and football were popular in the UK. The first live soccer commentary in the UK was broadcast by the BBC in 1927. Listeners could use a grid of squares to figure out where the action was taking place on the pitch. The commentator would give a grid position, like a square on a chessboard, to let people know where things were happening. If you've watched baseball recently, you'll know that they have a digital overlay of the strike box during plays, so you can see where balls and strikes go. It's not that far removed. The first combination of words and pictures would have come to people through cinema, particularly the news features that showed before movie features. This evolved into sports on television, something which I've talked about before back in episode one as being instrumental to my sporting education as a youngster from highlights programmes to live broadcast, from network television to sports-specific networks like Eurosport, ESPN and Sky Sports. As the technology of television expanded from a handful of analogue channels to hundreds of digital channels, there was real estate for more sports coverage and an increasing degree of specialisation. When I was younger, sports coverage was something that happened in generalist programmes on a Saturday afternoon. Specialist broadcasts for, say, Formula One or skiing highlights on a Sunday, and not at all during the week, apart from special occasions like Wimbledon or the Olympics. Now sports is 24-7. The multi-sports programmes have disappeared to become multi-sports channels, think Eurosport, but we have an increasing number of channels that are dedicated to just one sport, horse racing or golf, for example. 
I mentioned earlier the impact that media has had on sports. Here in the UK, a sport like snooker really burst into popularity once colour television became a reality. Suddenly you had a sport based on coloured balls played on a table that would fit neatly into a TV screen. Tennis was an early winner on this basis too. You could follow the sport from a small number of fixed camera positions. Sports like cricket or golf found it more difficult until the camera technologies evolved to enable the tracking of a ball over a longer distance. Similarly, marathons, cross-country skiing and road cycling all became more of a television spectacle once you could have camera bikes and helicopters tracking races over a long distance and time. Innovations in camera technology keep taking us closer and closer to the sports we love. In biathlon recently, we've seen increased use of drones to show coverage of the further reaches of ski tracks, and we were literally in the races at the World Championships with a handheld camera carried by Sven Fischer following behind the races at the start of several races. Television relies on advertisers and sports relies on sponsorship, and this is a cocktail that can really work. Sports that build in opportunities for advertising are commercially attractive. American sports get criticised for being very stop-start, but they provide a lot of opportunities for advertisers, which help keep the sports viable. Sports with continuity of play, like soccer, offer fewer opportunities for advertisers, but more for sponsorship. So we see more sponsorship of teams, shirts, stadia, hoardings and so forth. One of the most frequent gripes that I've seen about biathlon coverage is from French fans who seem to have real issues with the amount of adverts that interrupt the racing on French TV. Digitalisation has also brought sport online, creating more real estate for specialisation and allowing for subscription models which can increase revenues for both sports and broadcasters and give ad-free options, a bonus in sports that last a long time. Internet streaming has given more people more access to sports they wouldn't necessarily see broadcast on national TV. Here in the UK, the only way to watch the first half of this year's biathlon season was on the IBU feed, as Eurosport had for some reason changed their contract. You have to be motivated to look, however. You lose some of the casual channel-hopping encounters with sport that traditional television used to provide, but you gain more bandwidth for showing longer format sports. Traditional TV only had so many hours to fill, whereas digital TV is effectively boundless, so you, can, so you can show sports events that last for several hours without having to just create a highlights package. Sports online also offer opportunities for multi-screening. As I wrote this, I had one eye on the UAE tour and one on the cross-country skiing world championships, and for different types of interaction. Much of this is about data provision. Digital timing has been around for a long time, to give us split times, for example, but live standings, athlete-specific data, numbers of passes completed in a soccer match, distances run, all these little aspects of data can now be presented to us. Sports Online gives us opportunities to be active as well as passive viewers. For some, this might be in-game gambling. For others, it might be the opportunity to comment on what's happening, either directly on a broadcasting site or through social media platforms. The Biathlon Twitter community is a great friendly place to hang out during a race, with a combination of factual updates, emotional highs and lows, fandom and celebration. So where next for sports broadcasting? One of the interesting things is the change in media ownership, from very large networks and broadcasters to the major internet platforms. This gives us a sense of democratisation. We can now create sports TV through our own videos and insights, but it's not as simple as all that. Content gets mediated somehow, 
whether through social media sites or platforms like YouTube. And it's interesting to think about who sports content actually belongs to. If content is broadcast on TV, it often belongs to the sport. But if you film it yourself in a stadium, does it belong to you? For many sports, this doesn't really matter. Eyes on the sport are key. But some of the more powerful sports could start to state claims of ownership over content that is filmed by fans. The implications of this are that, one, the film you took doesn't actually belong to you, and two, the sport itself can edit and select which bits of content they approve, potentially sanitising coverage of sports. Sometimes this sanitization could be good, taking out the gruesome spectacle of slow motion repeats of injuries, for example. But sometimes it could be bad, taking out things where rules appear to have been contravened or where a sports federation decides that it no longer approves of a player. It's not a huge leap to this from the treatment of stars like Colin Kaepernick after his peaceful protests, or the banning of rainbow t-shirts and LGBTQ signs as signifiers from the World Cup in Qatar. The interplay between ownership of a sport and ownership of content related to that sport is important and will probably rear its ugly head in the coming years. I don't expect the confrontation to arise in biathlon mercifully or in the other winter sports. There seems to be a positive and constructive relationship between the federations and the broadcasters and it's been a revelation to see how the IBU makes live broadcasts available free of charge through its website, at least in Europe. The other thing that I can see expanding is the use of data analytics and visualisations. In biathlon, that might mean digitalisation of the magnetic boards used by coaches to show the fall of each shot and making that information more frequently available to an audience during a race. It's stuff that we kind of see anyway, on those magnetic boards or on the camera coverage, and it would be a valuable addition without giving away any competitive advantage between athletes. That's a fairly easy win. We might also start to see things like relative speed on the tracks, distances between athletes in metres rather than seconds, and, data protection permitting, performance data like the Strava data provided by cyclists. More data opens up opportunities for improvements in training, or at least comparing the differences between athletes. Each athlete is different, so each athlete's data will be different, but greater granularity would help to suggest things that could be adapted. In fact, it would be interesting to know what sort of data coaches already have access to, in training and in competition, and how the technologies that underpin it could be made available more widely, whether to emerging nations or enthusiastic amateurs. Again, things like Strava and Zwift have opened up cycling. One of the consequences of this has been that athletes from underrepresented nations have been able to gain visibility among the major European-based teams, and we've seen the arrival of cyclists like Jay Vine into the global sport. Who knows, maybe a future cross-country or biathlon world champion is a computer game away from discovery. Throw in some VR headsets and the experience of eSports could be incredible. The other thing that gets opened up by more data is gambling. This is a daunting prospect. It feels like gambling is currently more of a factor in global sports like soccer and in the US market where there's been a liberalisation of gambling laws in recent years. I'm not sure how much gambling takes place on winter sports, but I guess that it's based on outcomes like winners and podium finishes, rather than in-race bets like leader after the first shoot or how much will Johannes win by. The absence of gambling sponsorship from winter sports suggests that it isn't a market that exists right now, thankfully, but it's something that may raise its head in the coming years. The hardest thing to predict is technology. We get used to what we have, then someone invents something, and we get used to the new thing or we ignore it completely. Newspapers, telegraph, radio, cinema, 
TV, internet, phones. We don't know what's coming next. Perhaps the future of biathlon is in the metaverse and we'll have avatars racing for us. Perhaps the next technological innovation for biathlon isn't around broadcasting, but around the rifles and the oft-discussed but controversial move to rifles without physical ammunition. I guess one thing is about how far you let broadcast technologies interact with the race itself. We've seen issues with cyclists drafting behind TV motorbikes to get an advantage. We've seen TV cars knocking cyclists off their bikes. We've seen drones and wired cameras falling to the ground mid-event. We've seen fans with mobile phones disrupting races trying to get the perfect selfie. Sometimes it's the technology, sometimes it's the people wielding the technology. It feels like it's for federations to understand the opportunities from new broadcast technologies and for fans to allow them for some experimentation, but for an acceptance and acknowledgement of risk. Test events and trials are no bad thing. Look how long it took for goal line technology and VAR to become part of soccer, and they're still controversial. Rules and refereeing also need to be considered. What happens if a broadcast issue affects the outcome of a race? What would happen even now if the TV cameras nudged a biathlete on the track or blocked their view on the range? There's a lot of scenario planning to be done. Back to biathlon. And it's a well-deserved week off for the biathletes this week. It happens to coincide with the Nordic World Championships to fulfil all your cross-country skiing and ski jumping needs. Biathlon will be back on Thursday the 2nd of March as we open the event meet at Nova Miesto in the Czech Republic. As I mentioned, the Czech team had a really good World Championships, so we can expect a really positive atmosphere and enthusiastic crowd. Some other biathlon news post-World Championships, Emilien Jacqueline has decided to withdraw from the rest of the season. He struggled this year, mentally on the range, and lacking some of his competitive fire on the tracks. It has been hard to watch, and it feels like the right thing to do to take some time away from the spotlight and speculation and figure out what he wants to do next. If that's biathlon, great. If not, he's a very talented photographer and a smart guy who could certainly move into a broadcasting career or do whatever he wants, really. He's also a multiple world and Olympic medalist who doesn't need to prove anything to anyone. I'd love to see him back. I enjoy the way he attacks the sport and the flair he brings. But like I say, he's a cool guy with great prospects, whatever he decides to do next. The other rumour that seems to be swirling is that Marta Oldsby-Roysland may step away from the sport at the end of this season. This one seems more speculation than anything. Her husband is a coach for the German team, which presumably means that he has to be based there, which in turn makes it harder for Marta to train as part of the Norwegian squad without them being apart for much of the season. It would be a shame to lose her from the sport in the prime of her career, especially as she's had such a strong World Championships rebuilding after illness. Let's hope the rumours are just rumours and we'll see her continue long into the future. So no biathlon to watch this coming weekend. Enjoy your time watching the cross-country skiing and ski jumping from Planica in Slovenia. The Slovenians adore their ski jumping and have incredibly strong representation in both the women's and men's disciplines, so you can expect a fantastic atmosphere. One last thing. It turns out that winter sports fans owe a debt of gratitude to Mickey Mouse. The first television coverage of competitive skiing was from the 1936 Winter Olympics held in Garmisch in Germany. YouTube has some video clips of various sports, including hockey and figure skating, as well as what the British Pathé commentator calls the slalom. The 1936 Winter Games also saw military patrol, the precursor to biathlon, as a demonstration sport. The Winter Olympics of 1936 were almost a dry run for the more visible Summer Olympics in Berlin. 
there was more military presence, noted by reporters, which was downplayed by the time of the Berlin Games. And anti-Jewish signs and rules were lifted temporarily to suggest rather poorly that there was no discrimination taking place. 20 years later, in 1956, Italian TV shows some live coverage of the Olympics at Cortina for the first time. And it's nice to think that we'll be back in Cortina in 2026, 70 years on, for another Olympic Games. The real breakthrough in televised Winter Olympics came in 1960, at Palisades Tahoe, then known as Squaw Valley. The chair of the pageantry committee was one Walt Disney. This put him in charge of the opening and closing ceremonies, the medal ceremonies, and the torch relay. A lot of the pomp and ceremony that we are used to, flag bearers, dancing, sculptures and statues, live entertainment, was pioneered by Disney and his team. That said, at the time, the games weren't much of a draw. ABC bid $50,000 for the broadcast rights, then withdrew, and there was concern that there wouldn't be any live TV coverage at all. CBS stepped in, apparently, quote, not out of any love for the Olympics, but as a favour to Disney. So maybe not Mickey Mouse, but certainly Walt Disney played a big part in how winter sports are presented and portrayed on TV, which is something I never thought I'd say. Thank you for listening. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with links to all sorts of background information at skishootrepeat.podbean.com. Please do give us a follow on Twitter at skishootrepeat and do get in touch to tell me what's right, what's wrong, what you're enjoying and what you'd like to hear more about in future episodes. I'll be back next week to look ahead to the racing in Nova Miesto and explore some more things associated with the sport of biathlon. Thanks for listening to Ski Shoot Repeat. I've been Lizzie Boyle.